Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, I really find that this interview and this guest is going to be mind-blowing. He's built a massive company before. He's now at it again. And in fact, we've had uh, some of his... Uh, co-founders on the previous company also on the show. They've gone out to do other billion-dollar companies. I mean, unbelievable the team and unbelievable the founder that we're going to have today. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Diraj Pandey. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. I'm grateful. So originally born in Putna, there in India, one of the most populated areas in the country. So how was life growing up there? You know, very simple, grounded. Uh, this was before Bangalore took off. It was a fairly good tier two town uh, of the same caliber as Bangalore and Hyderabad and some of the other cities people hear about. And uh, my father was constantly moving to different cities, but education was an important piece of the puzzle for values of the when parents had this value that you should get educated in good English medium schools. So we decided to stay in Patna and my father would uh, travel around the state. And uh, you saw a lot of things, you know, you saw uh, middle class values, you know, you understood empathy, you you got a lot of help from relatives and, and others. Because, you know, I grew up in the state which was 
probably the most corrupt and lawless back in the day and my father would stop getting paid for like 6 9 months at a time uh, he was an he was a government servant uh, on a salary and uh, you could see the uh, the ill effects of politics and the 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 dark side of democracy and corruption and uh, socialism and all that stuff as well but i think uh, i learned a lot about giving because we we got so much from our relatives as well and friends and um i think uh, at the same time you know you could see the silver lining of uh math and science and english and and all the good stuff that actually uh was part of my life as well which basically makes me who i am today so why coming to the us and you know also coming to the us was your first experience getting on an airplane uh yeah quite something you know this uh, after my senior year basically in my junior year I had a fork in the road I could have stayed back in India this is 96 uh, in my junior year um I figured you know I think I'll keep it the options open it's always about optionality I you know I applied to some good schools uh, you know got some really good offers to come to UT Austin Urbana Champaign Southern California and places like that uh, and I had a fork in the road I could have joined you know deloitte uh, in chicago or which was the first year they were recruiting directly out of india i could have joined unilever in india or i could have pursued a phd in computer science and decided to actually come to the us and build a better foundation of computer science so that's when i came to austin and and you know there was a fellowship that i had received from the university so i'm very grateful to ut austin uh, they didn't pay for my flight ticket so i had to go to a couple of these conglomerates in india the tatas and the mahindras and they gave me 3000 and i left 1000 bucks with my parents i bought a ticket for 1000 back in the day this is 97 august 97 and um i had 900 bucks in my pocket uh, and uh, my this is my first flight of never really taken a flight in life till that time and i was almost 22 so it was quite an exhilarating experience you know and very humbling and at the same time Once you have it is like you know the kind of enthusiasm fizzles out because it's like a bus ride. Right. And then also I mean I'm sure that you know coming to a different country I mean so far away to different culture different everything I'm sure that that was uh one of the very first times in your life I mean obviously now you've dealt with it as an entrepreneur left and right with with uncertainty you know but uh, I'm sure that was the very first time where you were really present to uncertainty in your life. No absolutely in fact i remember i was still getting used to the americanisms like at the subway and i you know really developed a liking for subway it was close uh, within the campus at in austin and uh, the first day i went there they're like for here to go and uh, i didn't know what that meant you know so they asked me the question for here to go and i said yes and that was embarrassing because one of my friends who had been there a couple of years like what are they asking you is whether you want to have it here or you want to do it for go and i think those are the things that are etched in memory for you as to how you learn a new culture uh and and how everybody else around you helped you like there were folks who had been here uh, at the university for a couple of years you know we stayed at their place for 15 days until we could lease an apartment and everything so all fond memories you know good memories Now one memory that I'm sure that you embrace is meeting your wife online. You know, definitely, you know, some of the tools that the America gave you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, internet was still a luxury at homes, but uh, at the university in our computer labs it was 
basically in abundance. And uh, I was two months into this country, October of 97. And I bumped into a website called talkcity.com. And there was a room called Bombay. And there was like 20 odd people chatting. This is still in the early days when even Messenger was was actually a luxury or IRC was just taking off. But, you know, I bumped into this girl. I chatted with her for like nine hours straight. And uh, two, three weeks later, we start to call each other. And, you know, there was long distance date for three and a half years before we got married. That's incredible. And and one of the things here is you ended up dropping out. And even before, you know, starting Nutanix, I'm wondering, you know, like how your experience of being, you know, first on Trilogy Software, then you went into the the startup and then, you know, to Oracle, you know, right prior to 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 starting the business. I'm wondering what each one of those experiences taught you because I think very rich experiences too, because you're able to first see the corporate side, then the startup side, then more like the innovative, you know, corporate side of things. So what were so how do you think those experiences really shaped the way that you were seeing things? You know, uh, Trilogy was all about hiring and recruiting machinery from colleges. They were the best. I mean, even Microsoft would shudder to compete with Trilogy back in the day. The best of the best from the top 50 universities came and worked at Trilogy Software in Austin. But also you saw the other side of Trilogy, the excesses, you know, like how much money was being spent. And this is the dot-com. This is 99. You can imagine the height of the bubble. You learned how not to, uh, you know, get ahead of yourself. Uh, but the other good part about Trilogy was the network. You know, people are very helpful to each other. I mean, again, young people growing together because they're all out of school. I think it was probably the thing that continues to even more than two decades later, people still help each other. If they're Trilogians, they know about each other, you know. Um, I think the startup for three years, this is when the bust had happened. The, the bubble had burst in 2000, 2003. Again, you learn a lot about how when you raised money, how do you really spend it? What does product management mean? How do you not build a top-heavy company? And again, recruiting was everything. I met the best people uh, in my life at that startup because the young talent was amazing coming out of school that joined that startup. But you also learn a lot about shipping code and uh, and just putting your head down when there is everything that's melting around you, which is what was happening. How do you not worry about everything else and, you know, be mindful and stay focused and so on. And uh, I think, you know, again, Oracle was about shipping code and learning from the large enterprise uh, requirements and, you know, configurability of software and large scale, uh, you know, sort of uh, distributed systems. You know, just amazing, you know, I mean, this was the time when Oracle was kind of becoming like an IBM or at least in the early stages of that when, Changing a lot of code was considered, uh, um, you know, heretic. You know, it's like it's uh, it's heresy to change so much code and destabilize something that was looking like a mainframe uh, sooner than later. You know, so I bumped into Bipple. Um, he and I became great buddies. He's the CEO of Rubrik right now, but he was the first investor uh, later in 2009 when we started Nutanix. So made great friends. Uh, obviously, itching to do something. I. Figured, you know, I'll apply to business schools in 2006. I applied to only the top three schools in business. And by 07, you know, I had this thing falling in me. Like I got rejections from all three of those places, you know, Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton. And, you know, at the same time, I realized looking back that it was the best thing to happen to me. Because if I had graduated in 2009 out of business schools, 
I probably would never have started Nutanix. So, you know, big you know, student of fatalism. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I think itching to get out and do something, you know, joined Astrodata as the 11th, 12th employee. Uh, learned a lot about the the things that you miss from Oracle and the things that you uh, learn from Aster to go and start Nutanix in 09. Now, Nutanix, what a founding team. I mean, we've had, you know, the other founders too on the on the show, Ajit, Mohit. Uh, now, now you're here with us. And I got to tell you, I've been blown away every time I've, I've spoken with, with one of you guys. Uh, and uh, it's incredible how you're all, you know, now going, you know, in different directions and, and really building remarkable companies uh, separately and independently from what you did in Nutanix. But I guess, you know, for the listeners too, because team is really everything. And that's why investors are always like, what do you look for? Team, 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 team. And, and you don't really get that until you see something like this. Or for example, in Google, many of the early employees of Google have also gone out and, and done amazing things. But how did you guys, how did the band, you know, sort of speak, come together? And how did you guys really come uh, with the idea of Nutanix and then to say, let's go? You know, as they say, necessity mothers invention. Being at Aster during the global financial crisis was uh, quite an experience. This is 08, 09. Again, uh, we were extremely like heads down, focused on building a product. But there was a time when you realized that, you know, you have this fire in the belly and you want to really bring it out and shape this company, Aster Data. And you couldn't because, you know, the founders, their hands were also tied. You know, they had to figure out the right balance between product and go to market. Uh, we had an early win uh, at Astra with, uh, with MySpace. You know, this is MySpace way bigger than Facebook back in the day in 08. And you also realize that uh, when you get an early large win on, a you know, building an analytics platform for one of the hottest uh, brands, uh, in the world, not just in the valley, but in the world, you basically forget the sort of this balance that's required between innovation and go to market. You know, what does the product market fit mean, and so on. You know, and we were just itching to go do something because we knew that we could build a company based on our gut call as well. So, you know, one thing led to another. The financial crisis was a big part of it. We had started to see the advent of Hadoop, uh, which was open source and how do you compete with open source as a proprietary software. And the idea was to go embrace something as opposed to continue to be cornered into a niche. Uh, you know, SQL back in the day was unfashionable. Now, obviously, we know SQL came back uh, 10 years later to become uh, sort of the darling of everybody with Snowflake and and all that. But Back in the day, it was like, wow, every developer wanted to do just open source and disparate systems and batch processing and Java and things like that. So I think there was this fire in the belly around what things does the world need? And one thing led to another. We had started talk early 2009. We spent six months just thinking about uh, how we want to really shape our own careers. And that basically became Nutanix. We didn't have uh, the strongest of ideas. It was just that we wanted to really do something of our own. We knew that we had built distributed systems and we wanted to really uh, go make it elegant. I mean, Apple was the new thing in town, App Store. And, you know, just the iPhone was there for the first time. So there was a lot of learnings about consumer-grade design, which up until then was elusive in most developers' lives. 
So between that and the hunger for building a distributed system that the world would like, you know, we came about Nutanix, the nebulous idea became a little more concrete, a little more concrete, a little more concrete. And by 2011, 2012, we thought we had a product. And then what ended up being the business model for the people listening to really understand? How did you guys make money with Nutanix? So the idea was that we uh, took data management, which was a, still a hard problem and always be a hard problem is data management, but really make it available to the compute side people, you know, the virtualization people, the VMware diehards who were, you know, basically being disenfranchised because they couldn't make the calls uh, and have the agility to really spin up uh, projects and applications and things like that. So we really brought a lot of uh, very profound data management uh, sort of skills to them without they having to know much. And again, this was the learnings out of Apple, or really abstractions, consumer-grade design. And we packaged it in, in hardware because back in the day, our software just wouldn't be available uh, you know, on commodity hardware without a lot of hand-holding. So we packaged it. We were extremely strict about it. We knew the kind of form factors we'd go into. Uh, at the same time, we made it such that it's not expensive procurement, not like million dollars worth of a decision. You could decide to just go $30,000 at a time, which for its time was very innovative. You know, Now the cloud took it a step further and said, no, 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 not $30,000, but $30 at a time. You know, And I think the idea that you could break down IT procurement into smaller things, like really small things that incrementally grow over time, uh, basically was very innovative and disruptive for its time. Now, with Nutanix, there has been many instances where you guys, uh, you know, touched being dead, like near-death experiences. Many of them, you know, with VMware and, you know, with hardware stuff, with Intel and things like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm guessing, I guess, what were, what were the biggest lessons uh, that you learned from those experiences? Like, who do you need to be as a leader in order to really keep moving forward when you have, like, those experiences in front of you that are pretty scary? I think the biggest one is around turbulence and how does the crew behave in this turbulence? Because if the crew panics and starts to point fingers and, uh, you know, basically does uh, abnormal things, then the passengers panic as well. And I think it's really important to have that focus and the staying power to say, it doesn't matter what happened, we all are just rolling forward, you know. And that roll forward was the most important culture that basically kept us going. You know, we had, you know, all sorts of learnings along the way around quality and around packaging and around, uh, you know, distributing hardware and software together, which later on we did sort of uh, unravel because we went with pure software and the opposite of what we did in the first three years, uh, in the last three, four years of my uh, Nutanix uh, presence. I mean, which is the other thing that you have to change your mind because cloud was coming upon us in 2016, 17, after we've gone public. So you need to know when to change your mind and when to have conviction. I think it's a really, really tenuous balance, you know. Uh, but the most important thing was, you know, have the staying power, you know, in turbulence. Don't blame anybody. Roll forward, stay authentic. And people around you just appreciate that stability of emotion because, if you get uh, very emotional, then people around you find it extremely thankless. And remember, you know, doing a company is hard, but uh, beating incumbents in their own game and also making sure that the enemy is not within but outside is even harder. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, the three of you were foreigners. And um, when you're a foreigner and it's your first rodeo to venture, it's not easy to really gain access to money. How did you guys go about that in order to really capitalize well the business? It was a bird in hand principle, you know. We knew Bipo because you know I'd overlapped with him at uh, at Oracle four and a half years. He'd hired me, and then we had become peers. We had created good bonds. He was also itching to do a venture capital for the first time because uh, in '09 he had just joined Blumberg Capital, and Nutanix was a second deal. I mean, there was trust about people, uh, about each other, and. Uh, he was also hungry to basically invest in good people. We happened to be the second team uh, that he invested in. And uh, within 10 months, he had moved to Lightspeed. And you know, he and Ravi Mahatre basically, again, there was this vicarious trust that, look, if people trust these people, then we can trust them too. And, and we had a good background, you know, uh, between Ajit, Mohit, and myself. We had done good things in life. We appeared authentic. And you know, we got uh, that $10 million check. Uh, which was a Series A, and we converted our safe note at that time. So we had raised about $13.5 in the first six months of our existence. But it's all about people, and obviously, you know, the pedigree mattered, but more than anything else, the fact that uh, we, we, we kind of knew what we were talking, you know, and not that we knew everything. I mean, obviously, we changed a lot of our thinking over time based on the market's feedback, but I think there was a level of authenticity that uh, basically uh, investors are willing to bet on. Now, you came here to the U.S. with 900 bucks. And uh, all of a sudden, you find yourself ringing the bell and taking Nutanix public, uh, having built a company that uh, is over, you know, worth over $5 billion. What was going through your mind when you were ringing that bell? I think first, the gratitude for people. You know, we made tons of people not just millionaires, but five millionaires and 10 millionaires, you know. But more than the generational wealth, I think it was just the fact that it took so many people to get there. And yet I knew that the journey had barely begun. I mean, if anything, personally, I wanted to go public way later, you know. But 
you know, at some point there was these town hall meetings and everybody's like, look, uh, don't just think about yourself. Think about people who had to buy cars and pay for their mortgage and all that stuff, you know, came in the calculations. It was a tough year because 2016, for the first nine months, there were no companies that went public in tech uh, or even in all of NYSE and uh, and NASDAQ. I mean, there was the first crisis in the first three months with oil and the uh, you know Saudis selling their uh, assets. The next three was China catching cold on its economy. And then the next three was Brexit. So the first nine months, there was a real kind of drought where there was no companies that had gone public. And we eventually, when we went out in September, end of September 2016, that whole year, we were the largest IPO in the, in the, in the whole year, you know, and I think that required a lot of patience. You know, there were all sorts of, you know, media speculation on how this company could never go public and all this stuff. I mean, there's lots of people who are just naysayers will actually come at you and uh, you needed to protect your people, your customers, your investors. Everybody had to be protected in, in those nine months. So I think it was real grit and determination and patience. And looking back, you realize that the journey had barely begun because within a year, we said we we're going to become a software company because of what was going on with cloud. We knew that we had to be more portable and then become a subscription company. And that was a three, four year journey itself, you know. In your case, I mean, this was an 11-year journey, you know, as you were saying, and, and, and obviously every company, is, it goes in life cycles. You know, every company transforms every 18 to 24 months, and I find that as the founder, and in this case, the CEO that you were for all this time, for over 11 years, you also needed to transform yourself in order to continue at the same pace in parallel with the business. What did you learn about self-development and transforming yourself in order to keep up with the speed? Yeah, the first one was about design and consumer-grade thinking and learning a lot from Apple. I mean, even after Steve Jobs passed away, if anything, I miss him way more now than when he was alive and with us. I have come to appreciate design a lot. I mean, there was a probably a hidden, I don't know, artist in me or a even an interior decorator in me because I've speak, taken so much of that in personal life as well. But I think overall design was a big part of it and not just product design and you know API thinking and all that, but even organizational design. Like what does it mean to design things? You know, I think that was probably the biggest one. And the second one is around uh, understanding customers. You know, we were so good at uh, bringing developers closer to customers at Nutanix. I mean, our net promoter score was above 90 for six years. And it was just about the empathy for the end user, always being subservient to the customer, you know, knowing what it meant to get our developers connected to customers and how that, that was the aha moment. And if anything, a lot of that became fuel for my next company, DevRev. Uh, but the idea that customer was paramount and uh, being subservient to them was so important uh, basically was a great lesson in that whole decade. I mean, incredible the amount of time. I mean, those 11 years could be 70 or 150 years in corporate. No? I mean, what, what you did, you know, during that journey is remarkable. And I guess, you know, especially after having accomplished so much, I mean, what led you to say, you know what? I think I have it in me to go at it again. I think the world was changing around us with subscription and cloud. I mean, everything was being streamed from the internet. And uh, we had done a massive transformation going from hardware to software to subscription in those four or five years. 
but things were continually going into the ether as a SaaS software or as infrastructure as a service or platform as a service. The public cloud was basically proving that this model uh, of zero touch, low touch, you know, commerce with credit cards and, you know, the initial bill being $10 and $50 was really here to stay. And the fact that grassroots was making calls as opposed to very senior IT people early on, I mean, they eventually do, but, you know, in the first, you know, two, three, five hundred thousand dollars you know, you start making, uh, you know, a lot of these procurement decisions in the grassroots level. I think that was there to stay. And I figured when COVID happened in 2020 that, I think there's a model that uh, I still haven't tried, which is the SaaS model. And if anything, uh, even an extreme version of SaaS, which is now called product-led growth, uh, the idea that uh, you could do zero-touch selling, freemium, at scale, all those things uh, were actually a big part of uh, what I was very curious about. So, uh, you know, this, uh, and, and at some point you had to realize that, you know, if you didn't do it now, you probably would never do it. So I turned 45 in 2020, and I figured uh, this idea of streaming, um, you know, solutions from the internet is basically the thing of the future. Let's go and give it a try because the next five years, once I turned 50, it would have been much harder. There's a psychological barrier to starting company when you turn 50, even though people have. I figured it was the right time. So then, how did you go about putting, you know, the team together here? Again, the bird in hand principle. There's people you know, and there's people that you want to learn from. Uh, I think it came together. Lots of people uh, that I had worked in the past, uh, not just in Nutanix, but even folks that uh, I had interviewed at Astrodata. And, uh, you know, we've just uh, had come to form these memories about uh, people that I would respect and they respected uh, us as well. We all came together in late 2020, early 2021. But a big chunk of the DevRev employee base is actually out of college. So these are new college grads. And I remember going back to the lessons of Trilogy that uh, they can form a great foundation and be a great complement to some of the experienced people that I've worked with this last decade. Again, designers were a big part of our thinking. So we built a really, really prominent design team, product management team. And uh, many people that uh, I wanted to learn from based on their experience out of Salesforce and uh, Apple and, uh, you know, Airbnb and all these companies, consumer-grade companies that uh, I really wanted to work with and, and learn from. So then what's the business model of DevRev? We are trying to go after developers. We are like, look, um, we feel like you've been kind of managed all this while by every manager on the face of this earth, you know, there's release managers, support managers, escalation managers, project managers, sales managers, you know, they've always been managed, even though, you know, going forward, their code is going to drive so much, not just the product, but support and sales and growth. Uh, they're all going to be engineered with code. So the goal here is to really go and convince them that they need to be closer to the customers. They need to know more about customers. And all the tools, which there's so many of them now, there's back office issue management tools and, you know, business messenger tools and support ticket tools. And Slack is there for collaboration with uh, not just internal people, but sometimes with customers too. There's product analytics tools. There's lots of tools and they all become too expensive. Therefore, they either stay with support people or with product managers or with 
uh, only developers and, and so on. We just feel like there's a way we can democratize data. We can bring collaboration together where everybody learns uh, and collaborates together, including customers. You know, that's very important that we don't make uh, this exclusive for just vendors like SaaS companies, but also their customers. So the idea is we go freemium and we do freemium at scale. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter here is PLG is a lot about zero touch and low, low touch. It's its new sort of concept that's been emerging and talked about for the last couple of years, product-led growth, where the product sells itself a lot. Now, that doesn't mean freemium forever, but the fact that you've put enough nudge theory in there and the fact that you can convince people to come and pay for it later on is a very important part of the puzzle. Yeah. The, the important thing here is that you build this at scale because engineering here will matter. Because over time, if you di didn't do this for $10 a month kind of subscription or even $0.10 cents, uh, kind of consumption, then you're failing uh, the developers of the future. Now, after your experience with Nutanix, I mean, you, you definitely build, you know, as well as many, many people there, generational wealth. And in this case, you know, on the seat uh, round of uh, DevRev, you went at it a little bit different this time. You know, you, you just raised a massive seat. Uh, why did you think it was better to get outsiders to, to jump in as opposed to maybe, you know, you pushing this a little bit, you know, with your uh, own means and, and then maybe, you know, get people later on? I think we're going through a very interesting balance. You know, we've been making sure that we can shore up enough cash because it's a, you know, very ambitious project to really integrate a lot of this stuff and do a freemium uh, company, build a consumer grade sort of uh, business model behind it. At the same time, you're also being very stretchy. So on one hand, we're being chasey and saying, look, uh, first of all, we're not diluting a lot because it's going to be a safe note. Uh, and you know, at some point, it'll convert when we start to show value uh, for our end users in the market. On the other, we are saying we have to be extremely stretchy with the dollars we have so we don't splurge because there were some really good lessons we learned from not just Trilogy, but uh, Zambil, my first startup in the Valley, um, to even, you know, surviving two financial crises, you know, one which was the internet bubble burst and then the global financial crisis. At both times, I was working for startups. Uh, so it's very important to build a grassroots up company rather than a very top heavy company. We're also doing some amazing work out of Slovenia and Bangalore and now Chennai. So I think we're really trying to bring the right balance between not diluting too much, making sure we have enough money in the bank to run a freemium model over time, but at the same time being stretchy with the dollar. Because the seed round that you guys did, what was that, 50 million? Yeah, I mean, effectively, it's more than that. I mean, uh, we're also streaming in some 10, 15 after the fact, after the 50. Uh, but uh, there's been amazing uh, demand. I mean, and of course, there's still a lot to be done to, I mean, there's no guarantees of success just because you've done it once. Um, yeah. Because this is, I mean, a second gig is as good as the first gig. It's like having a second child, you know, you, it's, it's a different child than the first one, you know. But probably easier, Duraj, to... Uh to raise money this time around. I'm sure that this time around, people were begging you to give you the money. Not as not as hard as with Nutanix that you needed to bang on a few more doors, no? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I was reading the book, The Innovation Stack recently, and 
in the first few chapters, uh, Jim talks about how, despite the fact that Jack had Twitter as a success in his pocket, people would still not come to believe Square's initial business model. So I think it's very humbling and very grounded, I mean, very grounding to know that just because you've done it once doesn't mean that you'll actually end up getting the benefit of the doubt right away. And I think that uh, humility is important because the market is is all-powerful and uh, the idea that you have needs to go through the rigors of the product market fit. You need to be having you know, the fierce resolve of your opinion, but at the same time, knowing that you'll have to pivot, micro-pivot along the way is an important piece. So yes, raising money was easier, but going and proving that you have something that is worthwhile for your end users and your customers and very delightful is going to be just as hard, if not harder. And in this case, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision for DevRev is fully realized. What does that world look like? Five years is at least 10 million users, maybe uh, a large percentage of them being uh, monthly active users, maybe even daily active users. Uh, the fact that uh, developers, product managers, support managers, they're all coming together with end users in a very extensible, highly scalable way, but also all the way from small companies to very large companies. You know, how do we really get uh, that delight going that, look, this is very Apple-like, you know, and I love coming to it. And at the same time, it's configurable for what I really want to do because developers at the end of the day, they also don't want it to be a black box. You know, it has to have customization of the object model, the workflow engine and all those things. So, you know, we should aim to be like another, uh, I would say, wildfire that spreads so fast because of word of mouth rather than spending hundreds of millions in marketing and buying the eyeballs. It actually happened because developers and product managers and designers actually cared to spread the word. And imagine if I put you into a time machine and I break you back in time, you know, back in time, you know, at that point where, you know, you're thinking about what's next, you know, maybe like launching a company of your own. Imagine you have a chance to speak with that younger Durash and uh, you're able to give yourself one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? That's a very profound question. I would say culture is everything. Because what's happening with developers now is that they're looking at their jobs as a one-year thing. And they all want to be working from home and dispersed and remote. So connection will be the biggest uh, business differentiator, you know, connection with your own employees first before it's connection with the customers, you know, connection with your own employees will mean a lot because the purpose has come to miss now. I mean, because they're changing jobs so often, they look at themselves as doers as opposed to definers. I feel like being able to really give your makers the ability to say they can help define the business is the only way you won't have such a revolving door of a business, you know. And I, you know, honestly, the biggest thing that any entrepreneur is dealing with right now is talent, purpose, making sure, you know, in fact, I'm going to talk about this, that you know, why is it that we don't have lots of hundred plus million dollar developers? Why do we have such few 10 plus million dollar developers? The reason is because they are fickle in their 
overall sort of ability to stick at some place and work at some place. And it's not the problem with them as much as it is the problem with the purpose. The fact that they don't connect to the purpose, they connect to their code and what they build today and test today and deploy tomorrow. But at the end of the day, the business sense and why the customer matters is probably missing from the makers. And if we can you know, avoid this revolving door of talent, I think businesses will actually be a whole lot more efficient and companies will actually have a product market fit sooner and probably more efficient uh, business models uh, in the future. I love it. So, Dharaj, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, Twitter, it's at Dheeraj and also LinkedIn, uh, Dheeraj Pandey. Amazing. Well, Dheeraj, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. Grateful again. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.